0: Well, early on in my marriage, my wife and I, our first home that we rented was a duplex in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and it was in a neighborhood that was full of new construction. And so a couple months into our marriage, when we moved into this duplex, we, we noticed immediately that it just didn't feel like a home. It was kind of cold. It had those white builder-grade walls that just needed warmed up. And so my wife and I, we decided, man, one, one great step would just to be in, p- to paint the entire first floor. And so we went and we got this huge five-gallon bucket of paint, and we began to paint the floors. and, Or not the floors. I hope we didn't paint the floors. We we painted the walls. And so after we were done painting the walls, I mean, we just stepped back, and, and we were like so excited about, man, the transformation. It just felt like home. It was warm and inviting. And so we invited Ashley's parents to come and check out the results to see what we did. And so they came over for dinner that night, and they were blown away at the results they were so excited they kept on saying things like this is amazing and and in fact my mother-in-law looked at me and she said drew do you guys have any paint left do you have any paint because we would love to actually use this color in our home and we had about of the five gallons we probably had about two and a half gallons left and so i told her we had some final touches uh, that we needed to put on the walls and once we were done in a couple days i would actually deliver the paint to their house and so I finished doing some of the touch-ups in our home, and I grabbed the five-gallon bucket of paint, and I started to put it in my car. And I drove an Oldsmobile Alero, and the trunk on yeah, come on, yeah, amen, right? You know, yeah. And so the trunk of this car was a little bit shallow, and so as I'm trying to put this five-gallon bucket of paint in there, I can't really get it in standing up, and I don't feel really good about laying it down. And so I put it in the back seat and I take the driver's side or the passenger side back seat and I push it back up against this five-gallon bucket of paint to secure it in. And so as I get in my car, I'm 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 backing out, and remember, this is a a new development, and so the 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 driveway and the road are there's a little bit of a dip. And so as I'm backing out, I, I go over this bump and I I hit I hear the bump and it goes boom, clank, boom. I'm like, oh no. And I look back in my car in the back of my car, and I notice that the five gallon bucket of paint has tipped over, and the lid's no longer on it. yeah, and so I put my car in park and I, I run around and I open the passenger side door and in the back seat and I realize there's about a foot of paint in my back seat so I run to the garage, I grab this giant shop back, and I'm, I'm sucking out paint, and I'm sucking out paint, and finally I get all the paint out, and I grab this huge container of Dawn dish soap, and I'm like squirting it everywhere, and I'm just scrubbing and sucking and scrubbing and sucking, and I just realize at some point, it doesn't matter how long I spend on this car, it's ruined, it's done, the back seat will never look the same. And today we're starting a series with that title, Ruined. And I would bet money that, you know, you know what that feeling feels like when something gets ruined because at four campuses with a lot of people attending our church, probably some of you today feel that about some area in your life. You feel like something is broken, something is destroyed, it needs fix, and it's beyond repair, it's ruined. You see, maybe you feel like that about your marriage today, where you've tried to make it work and you just say, man, I I can't fix this. Maybe today about your future, you've made poor choice after poor choice and you just view your life, it's ruined, it's over, I can't fix it. And I want you to understand something up front as we start this series called Ruined and we're looking at the life of Nehemiah. If you find yourselves feeling that way, like something in your life has has gone haywire, I want you to understand a theme of this series that you're in the right place this morning because our God specializes in restoring ruined things. Our God specializes, he's an expert at taking things that people say are ruined, can't be fixed. And he says, oh yeah, watch this. He says, I'll fix it. And our God is amazing at taking things that we would call ruined and destroyed and broken. And he's a master at fixing them. And we're going to see this in the life of Nehemiah in a unique way, an odd way, not the obvious way. So if you have your Bibles, you can jump to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, if you're using one of the Northridge Bibles, it's going to be on page 383. You can jump there in the Northridge app. You can download that. You can follow along in your notes, and you can also watch the screen. All the verses will be on there. And as we jump to Nehemiah chapter 1, I think When we look at the life of Nehemiah, in order to understand where his story begins, we almost have to rewind in history to kind of see what sets up the life of Nehemiah. You see, the Israelites lived in Jerusalem. It was where the temple was. It's where they would offer sacrifices to God. It was the place where they would worship. And so most of the the, the Jewish population found itself in Jerusalem. But in 2 Kings 24 and 25, the Babylonian Empire comes in and it destroys Israel. It It destroys Jerusalem. It burns their temples. In fact, this is what 2 Kings 25 verses 8 and 9, it says on the seventh day of the fifth month, in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzardan, a commander of the imperial guard and a, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. So if you can imagine this, Jewish people, their home is Jerusalem and the Babylon empire comes in led by King Nebuchadnezzar and it utterly destroys everything that Israel holds value to, the temple. They destroy it all. And so not only do they destroy it, but then they exile out all of Israel. They're kicked out of their home. You're talking about millions of people are just thrown out of their home and they're led to places where they gotta figure it out. And so 60 years after that takes place, The Persian Empire comes in and destroys the Babylonian Empire. And Persia has control. And there's this king named Cyrus. We find him in Ezra chapter 1. He makes this decree that Jeremiah predicted, the prophet. He says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms on earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build, temples, uh, build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And so as the Persian Empire comes in and gains control, their king makes this proclamation to all the Jewish people who have been exiled. He says, you can come back to your home. You can start rebuilding your home. And it starts a year after this proclamation with a man named Zerubbabel. Y'all can write that down for your future kids. It's a beautiful name. Zerubbabel. Yeah, and so he begins to rebuild Jerusalem. He begins and he starts with the temple. 22 years later, after the decree of Cyrus, Zerubbabel and many others build the temple. They finish the temple, and then comes a man named Ezra. The temple was built, Jerusalem was starting, and a man named Ezra comes and brings reform, spiritual reform to the nation of Israel. As people are coming back from exile, Ezra leads the charge in leading, teaching them the law of of Moses, the law of God. And then 15 years later, from Ezra, 15 years later, Nehemiah's story begins. And what's interesting is a lot of us, when we look at our Bible, we look at it as books, So you will notice in your Bible that there's two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, but in ancient writings, Ezra and Nehemiah are all one scroll. They're two stories that play hand in hand together. And so we pick up Nehemiah's story in Nehemiah chapter one, where it says this, it says in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. While I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanai, one of my brothers, came from Judah and some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Now here we are, two verses in, and, I, and, and most of us are like, what the heck is going on? I mean, honestly, what the heck is the month of Kislev? And I would encourage you, you know, reading your Bible is, is, is hard sometimes, you read it and you're like, "What? I don't even understand what's happening. And we stop. We're like two, two verses in and we're like, I'm not going to waste my time. And I want to challenge you, when you read your Bible, grab a study book, grab a commentary and read with it. If you don't know what a word means, Google it at, at least and just see what some commentaries say. Because it's, it's kind of simple sometimes. In the month of Kislev, that just simply means December. It's how they measured time. And so they're saying, hey, in the month of December... Nehemiah is in the citadel of Susa now Susa is a pretty significant place in the Persian Empire and he's, fi- he's found in this citadel the citadel was this fortified building where often the king would find himself staying and so one of Nehemiah's brothers and a couple of friends they come and visit Nehemiah and the first thing Nehemiah asked them he says how's how, how are things at home How are things in Jerusalem? What's going on in Jerusalem? I know people have been exiled. They're coming back. What's taking place? In verse three, it says, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And so Nehemiah asks about home and he gets bad news. Like, dude, it's, it's destroyed. The walls are broken down. The people are in trouble and are in disgrace. And, and Nehemiah hears this news and he's crushed. I mean, his heart is absolutely broken. And this isn't like a, 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 like a first love kind of heartbreak. This is like a gut-wrenching, like, wow, this is destroyed Nehemiah. In fact, Scripture says Nehemiah's heart is broken so bad that he sits down and he weeps. And he doesn't just have a good cry and then sing a song and he's okay. He has a good cry for like days. It says he mourns and he fasted and prayed for days before God. Nehemiah's heart is broken. And again, you begin right here, you begin the moment where God begins to work in Nehemiah. God starts by breaking his heart to lead him to what he's really calling him to. And I think this is a pivotal moment for a lot of us because, you know, I I think at the end of the day, as a Christian, a lot of us, we want to do something great for God. I mean, that's our desire. Like, we desire to do something significant. We want God to do something great through us. I, I pray that's your prayer. That's my prayer. God, use me for something great. But I think what we fail to realize is God will never do something great through you until he does something significant in you. God will never do something great through you until he starts working on the inside of you. And that's how God works. You see it throughout the course of history in the Bible, is God starts on the inside. God starts with your heart because God knows if he has your heart, he'll have the extremities. He'll have all of you. And so God begins with Nehemiah, not on some a majestic plan. He begins by working in his heart. And I wonder, for so many of us, we, we want God to do something great through us, but we're not willing to surrender our heart to him. We're not willing to say, God, work on the inside of me first. We just want to go do something great. And so, Nehemiah, you see, God is beginning to work in his heart. But we get to know a little bit more about Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, it says this simply. It says, I was cupbearer to the king. And so God is beginning to call Nehemiah to something great, and you realize that God has leveraged his position at the perfect time. Because cupbearer, he says he was the cupbearer of the king. And this is a significant position. This is a position of power. But that really doesn't land with us when we read that, because no one's online searching for cupbearer positions. Man, I'd love to be a cupbearer today. No, this is not a reality in our culture today. But a cupbearer was a significant position. Let me put it into our context today, 2017. The cupbearer was much like the head of the Secret Service for our president. Because Nehemiah's job was to save the king's life at all costs. And one of his main roles was to drink and to eat everything before the king did. So he had some of the best wine, he had some of the best food, because if you wanted to overthrow the king in this day and age, you couldn't get close to him, and so you would try to slip poison into his drink. And so they came up with this position called cupbearer. And Nehemiah, before the king ever drank or ate anything, Nehemiah would eat it to make sure it wasn't poison. Not a bad gig. I mean, you get the best wine in the world, the best food in the world, like, hey, sign me up. And so Nehemiah is in this position, but what's so significant about this position is he has access to the king. You see, in this day and age, you couldn't get near the king, not even within an arm's reach. You couldn't even shout to the king. He was protected. He was watched over. But God gave Nehemiah a position where he could speak to the king. And here's what I think a lot of us think. We think, how, how can God work through me? I'm just a stay-at-home mom. How can God work through me? I'm I'm in college, I'm a high schooler, I'm a middle schooler. How can God work through me? I just have a, a small, simple business. And I want you to understand something from this passage. No matter where you are, God has you where you are doing what you're doing for a purpose, for a purpose. God wants to leverage your influence. God wants to use you. And until he moves you from that job you don't like, until he moves you from that relationship that's driving you crazy, God has you right there doing what you're doing for a purpose. And we see that in Nehemiah's story. God starts by working in his heart, and now he's leveraging his position as a cupbearer. And so the natural progression in this story would be, okay, God's leading Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. God's moving in his heart so he would go back and he would do what God's calling him to do. And so the natural next step in, in the line of the flow of the events is I, I need to go to the king and ask him if I can go back. I mean, I need to go get it approved by my boss because I need a leave of absence. And so that just makes sense. It's the next next step in the journey God's going to take him. But Nehemiah does something significant before he goes to the king. Check this out, verse 11. It says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your names. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And Nehemiah does something so vital that I think this is a step that all of us, if not most of us, would skip out on. We know what God's calling us to do, so let's just go do it, right? But Nehemiah pauses and he says, hey, before I go to the king, I'm going to go to the king of kings. I'm going to go to the one who's actually in control. He recognized, "Hey God, I I know you want me to do this, but I can't do this without you. I need you to grant me favor. I need you to give me success today because without you, I'm nothing." And I think how many times do I skip that step? How many times do I just running and chasing and chasing and I never pause and say, "Okay God, hey, before I do this, will you grant me success?" Before I chase this down, will you be with me in the journey? And I want us to understand where you start often determines where you end. Where you start, you see, some of us, so, so many of us, we're, we're so excited about jumping into the battle, we often lose the battle before it even begins. And you have to realize that in the preparation phases of what God is calling you to, when God calls you to something, he's not going to not just equip you or prepare you. He's going to take a moment and he's going to say, hey, let's start and let's work because the battle's won in the preparation. It's not won in the battlefield. It's actually won before the battle even begins. And Nehemiah understood, hey, where I start and how I start determines where I'll end and where I'll be. And so he goes to God, and now he's ready to approach the king. Chapter 2, it says this, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, don't miss these small details. We started in the month of Kislev. That was December. And now we're in the month of Nisan, which is April. April. So we we often think when we read the Bible, it's just a story that goes really fast. But this is four or five months where God is shaping and molding and leading and guiding and preparing Nehemiah to go before the king. It wasn't like, oh, my heart's broken. God, help me. Hey, king, can I go? It was months of, of groundwork. It was months of preparation. And so it's a normal day for Nehemiah. He's in front of the king. King, I've tasted your wine. Here it is. Here's your wine. But something's different about this day. It says this, I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid. So the king notices something's wrong with Nehemiah. Hey, Nehemiah, what's, what's, what's the matter? You, you look sad. The king could see Nehemiah's heart breaking, and he realized that, hey, this, you're not just sick. You haven't just lost your puppy. Something is devastating you. Something is crushing you. And so the king says, what's the matter, Nehemiah? What do you want? What do you need? And then there's this little phrase, this tiny little phrase. It says, I was very much afraid. And right here, you get to see the, a glimpse of Nehemiah's humanity, because I don't know if you struggle with this, but I do sometimes. When I read my Bible and I I read about guys like Nehemiah or or girls like Mary or or guys like David and Moses, and and I just automatically assume that these are like superheroes. I assume that these are like extraordinary people that God hand-selected and that God gave special powers to. But the truth is, is Nehemiah is just an ordinary common man that God wants to do something extraordinary through, a lot like you and me. But Nehemiah was willing. The difference is a lot of us, God wants to do something extraordinary through us, but are we willing to do the steps we need to walk through? And it says Nehemiah was terrified because he's about ready to take a risk. He's about ready to ask a king who already said no to rebuilding the walls, who already said no at the beginning. And so Nehemiah is asking him to change his mind. And when Nehemiah asks, he's putting his life on the line. He's putting his job on the line. This isn't just like, hey, king, can I go back? No, get back to work. No, it's like, hey, if the king says no, bye-bye, Nehemiah. This is a huge risk, and Nehemiah is terrified. I wonder, when's the last time you, you took a risk like that for Jesus? Because I think a lot in our culture, hey, I'll take a risk for my business. If it's going to make me money, I'll go for it in my business. We take risks with our family. Hey, we'll move here or we'll go there. But when it comes to taking risks for God, it's like, "Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure it's worth it. I mean, honestly, when's the last time you put your life on the line for your faith? When's the last time you put your kid's life on the line for your faith? That is what Nehemiah is doing. And here you see a beautiful picture of leadership. We all want to be leaders. I mean, who doesn't want to be a great leader? We all desire that, but what is a great leader? And right here you just get a small principle of leadership because leadership, leaders take risks for the right reasons. Leaders go out on a limb for the right reasons, and there's no better reason than to take a risk than for the kingdom of God. There's no better reason to go out on a limb and put your life on the line for something that will last for eternity. And Nehemiah realizes this. And just to put it into context for you, here's what Nehemiah is asking. This is kind of what it's like in in our age. Remember, he's asking a, a pagan king, a king who doesn't give a rip about God. And so if you were to modernize that to 2017, it's much like me or you asking an atheist to do the work of God. That's what Nehemiah is getting ready to do. He's getting ready to ask an atheist, hey, you want to live pie squared with me where we pray for people, we invest in people, and we invite them to Jesus? That's what he's getting ready to do. He's asking a pagan king to do the work of God. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? It is crazy. God calls us to crazy. And this is what he says, verse 3. He says, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Good strategy, Nehemiah. Butter him up. Man, king, you look good today. You have been working out, bro? Why should my face look so sad when my city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. So here Nehemiah goes, king, I just want to go back and rebuild my city. My heart's broken. Will you send me? back. And I always wonder what that moment was like. Is there like this awkward pause where Nehemiah gulps and he's like, am I going to die? Am I going to lose my job? This is what the king says. Verse six, it says, then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. And I also said, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me a safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Aspha, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for my gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And so the king, it pleased the king to send Nehemiah back. And so Nehemiah gets a little cocky. He's like, oh. Since I can go back now, King, um, I got a couple more requests. Could you give me letters to the governors? And could they escort me safely, basically? Can I get a police escort back to, to Jerusalem? Like, that would be awesome. Oh, by the way, could you also send a letter to Aspha? Another great name you might want to write down. He's the keeper of this royal park. And what this royal park is, is it's this... Basically, it's this nature park full of large trees that the king would grow for his building projects. And so now Nehemiah is saying, hey, uh, king, could you just give me some of your lumber so I can rebuild my city? I mean, Nehemiah is like going out on a limb now, like, I'm glad you're happy, king, because I got a long list of things I need from you. And look, look, look how it ends. I love this part. This is probably the most significant part of the passage. It says, and because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. And don't miss this because this, this is so significant. Don't miss this part. Nehemiah says, he doesn't say, hey, and, and the king was gracious and he gave me what I asked. Nehemiah doesn't say, hey, because King Artaxerxes was in a good mood, I got all my... No, he says, because the gracious hand of God, of God was on me, the king granted my request. And I think Nehemiah understood something that a lot of times in life we forget. Nehemiah understood that the king... No matter what he was thinking, no matter what he ate, the king couldn't give Nehemiah what he wanted. Only the king of kings could. Nehemiah realized that, hey, at the end of the day, I can ask King Artaxerxes for all I want, but if God is not in it, it's not going to happen. And Nehemiah understood the sovereignty of God. And that word is antiquated. It's churchy, sovereignty. It just simply means who's the powerful one, who is in charge, who's in control. And Nehemiah understood that, man, he, he just got it. He, he got that, hey, no matter what King Artaxerxes says, it's all in control of my God. My, my God is going to tell King Artaxerxes what to do. And, and I think in life we forget that because we walk through a storm and some of you right now, something's broken in your life, something's, something's breaking your heart, there's, there's bad circumstances you're walking through, and, and I think we fail to realize that no matter the circumstance we go through, no matter the situation, God is in control. He's sovereign, he reigns, and I think we fail to realize that, especially in the bad circumstances, because we ask the question, why would God take me through this, but we have to recognize that, man, no matter what you're dealing with, the storm you're going through right now. Do you realize that God knew that storm was coming before you even saw symptoms of it? God ordained that storm for you to walk through. Do you realize that that God is in control? He knows. This is what the Bible says about God. These are amazing things. Revelation 21, verse 6, it says, I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Romans 13, 1, it says, Let everyone be subject to the governor authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. You see, Nehemiah realized, hey, King Artaxerxes, the moment God doesn't want you to be king anymore, you won't be king. The moment God says, do something, guess what? You will bend your knee and you will do what God says, because he's in control. In fact, I want to show you a glimpse of this because this is an amazing moment in Nehemiah's life where he really, you really see this portraying. In verse 3, Nehemiah goes before the king and the king asks him this question, Nehemiah, what do you want? He sees his heart is broken and he lays it on the line. This is the moment Nehemiah had been waiting for, for the king to look at him and say, what do you want? And you would think like at that moment, like tell him. Like, don't waste time. Don't waste the king's time. But in Scripture, it says, in that moment when Nehemiah was asked by the king, what do you want? It says, then Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven. Basically, what he said is, king, no offense, but you can't give me what I want. Only the king of kings can. And the truth is, is Nehemiah understood that God is in control. And so what can we learn? I mean, old story. Year, hundreds of years old, but how, how does it affect our lives today? What can we learn from Nehemiah's, the beginning of Nehemiah's story? And I want to give you two things. The first one is I think we have to come to this conclusion that we understand that nothing surprises God. Nothing surprises God. No matter what you're dealing with in life, no matter how hard the struggle is, God doesn't stand up in heaven and say, wow, didn't see that one coming. <laughs> Whew, good luck with that. No, I think sometimes we think that. But nothing surprises God. Nothing happens without him knowing about it, without his approval. God is in control, and because of that, nothing surprises him. Secondly, because nothing surprises him, you can fully trust God because he is in control. You can fully surrender to him. You can fully submit to him because at the end of the day, he gets it. He understands it. He's been through it. And when you walk through a storm, you can lean on God. You can lean on his understanding because at the end of the day, he's in control of it. But let's take take it a step further. We can understand that nothing surprises God. We can understand that we can trust in God. But how does my life change today? Today? How can my life change today because of Nehemiah's story? And I want to give you really three things. Three things, two that I think we need to stop doing and and, and one that we need to start. And I think it, it begins with this. I think we have to stop worrying. We have to stop worrying. You see, it doesn't matter who you are today. I believe this. At all of our campuses, every single one of us, at some point in our life, we worry about something. We worry about our kids. We worry about our future. We worry about our business. We worry about our neighbors. And really, do you know what worry is? Worry is just simply us realizing that we don't have control. It's us realizing that, man, I worry about my kids because I can no longer make decisions for them. I I can't fight their battles anymore because at the end of the day, they're becoming adults and They're going to get behind that steering wheel, and they're going to drive. And so help me, God, I got to let go. They're going to go off to college, and you won't be there anymore. And so we sit back and we worry because we've lost control. We worry about our future. Because it doesn't matter how much we plan. Doesn't matter how much we strategize, our five-year and our ten-year plan, surprises come and they change the course. And at the end of the day, we want to steer the ship, but we can't. And so we worry. I'm so guilty, man. I got two little girls. And I worry every day about that stupid boy that's going to walk into their lives But worry oftentimes consumes us. We lay in bed at night and we can't get it out of our mind. God, be with my kids. God, I I can't stop worrying. And it's because you realize that you aren't in control. And when you're not in control, the best thing to do is to surrender to the one who is in control. Philippians 4, 6, it says this. It says, don't be anxious about anything. Now, anything includes everything. Everything. But in every situation, when you worry, you pray and you petition with God with thanksgiving. And guess what? You present your requests to a God who is in control. So we gotta stop worrying. Secondly, we have to stop depending on you. And I'm just gonna be completely real with you, this is the one I struggle with the most. Because in my life, I like to depend on me. And my abilities, and my strength and my wisdom. And so I I navigate through life depending on me to manage it, to figure it out. And so that's what I do through life. I I just kind of go through life and I view God as my safety net. Because I I recognize that I'm only so wise and so eventually I'm going to encounter a storm that I can't conquer. I'm going to come upon a situation that I can't figure out. And you know what I do in those moments? God I need you. He's my safety net. I can't figure this one out anymore, God. So would you come into my life and will you help me? The storm's too big. It weighs too much. I'm not strong enough or wise enough to figure it out. And you know what that is? That's religion. That's religion at its best. And I'm telling you today, I don't want you to be a religious person because God doesn't want you to be a religious person. You know what God wants? You know what God desires is he desires a relationship. And the truth is today is he doesn't want to be your safety net. He wants to walk with you through the really easy times in life and the really difficult times in life. He doesn't want to be this this God that you just call on when you're in need. But he wants to celebrate with you when life is good and he wants to rejoice with you when it's great. But he also wants to mourn with you and fight with you when life gets difficult. The only way that happens is if you stop depending on you. You let go and you surrender and say, God, I I can't do this without you. That was Nehemiah's life. He realized, God, I, I can't get anything out of this king if you're not with me. I won't depend on me, God. I'll pray to you. And will you come with me? Will you walk with me? So we stop worrying and we stop depending on ourselves ultimately to get to this place where we start talking to God, where we start communicating to God. You want to know how you fall in love with God is you, you talk to Him. So I promise you, you talk to God, you'll fall more in love with Him. But really, this is pointing to a posture. You see, all of us, we live life with postures. And I think majority of us, we live in this posture. This posture where we stand on our feet and we're ready for anything that life throws our way. You know, I, I always wished I got into karate. I wanted to be a black belt, but that never happened, just being honest. But in karate, they teach you this posture of, of readiness, of power, when you stand in a, in a ready position, you stand with authority, you stand with strength, you stand with power and might. And I know some of you, you're intimidated right now. I mean, maybe it's my guns. I'm just saying, can I get an amen? Amen. Okay. But this is how most of us go through life. We stand in this posture. We're like, bring it on, world. I can handle this. I can do this because I'm mighty and I'm strong and I've got this. And right here is where we live. But today I want to introduce you to a different posture. And this posture isn't mighty. This posture isn't strong. It's actually the opposite of those things. It's weak, it's humble, it's surrender see this is the posture because when we get on our knees it's the form of surrender it's humility it's really saying I'm really not strong enough to make it through but what we fail to realize What we fail to realize honestly is right here you are stronger and you are more mighty on your knees than you are standing in your own strength because in this posture you don't have to fight the battle alone. You don't have to go at it alone because when you get in a place of surrender you realize that your God is fighting for you, that he walks with you and when the storm comes you don't have to shake and be afraid because the king of kings is with you. So you live in surrender and I'd ask you If you're physically able, when's the last time you found yourself on your knees or with your hands in the air saying, God, this is too big. Apart from you, I can't do anything. Help me, lead me, guide me. Because in this posture, you realize that our God specializes in restoring broken things. Because something might be broken in your life maybe it's your future your marriage your business your kids your relationship something right now is breaking your heart and the only place one of the only places where god will begin to fix it is when you get into a posture of surrender and say god i need you i can't fix this on my own and right here in this posture is where god begins to rebuild what's broken in your life